Creative Brain Candy by Creators for Creators. You're listening to Simply Stogies, a monthly podcast dedicated to the cigar enthusiast. Light up a stogie, sit back and relax while James brings you along on his journey as a new cigar smoker. Simply Stogies will review cigars, discuss topics that cigar aficionados find important, and will probably learn a few things along the way. Now, here's your host of Simply Stogies, James. Welcome to Simply Stogies. I am your host, James. Uh, this episode, we have with us uh, a, a returning guest. Uh, he is the uh, owner, blender of uh, LH Cigars. Uh, it's Nick Sirius. Nick, welcome back to the program. Thanks very much, James. Appreciate being back. Uh, I, I'm glad you came back. Uh, we talked a little bit the last time uh, we were on. We were going to have you back. We we're going to talk about Cuba for this episode. There's a lot going on this year in Cuba, so I'm, I'm excited to get into it figure out what's going on and really dig into what people should know, what cigar aficionados and enthusiasts need to know about Cuban cigars. But before we do, I'd like to invite you to go to OxfordCigarCompany.com and use coupon code SimplyStogies and you'll get 10% off any purchase. That's coupon code SimplyStogies only on OxfordCigarCompany.com. And while you're on the internet, yeah, make sure you go to CreativeBrainCandy.com and check out the great family of podcasts we have there, including... Eyes Forward March. Eyes Forward March uh, is a podcast from a couple of uh, Army or National Guard NCOs. Uh, they talk about everything that uh, NCOs need to know about, including how to transition out of the military into civilian life, into civilian business life. Eyes Forward March. Their latest episode uh, is a parody episode of this podcast, and they've titled it Simply Swishers. So make sure you go to creativebrainhandy.com and check out Eyes Forward March. Uh, Sergeants Seagar and Sergeants Bacon do a great job of breaking everything down for those of you in the military and transitioning out into civilian life. And that's it. That's all the shilling that I have to do for this episode. Nick, again, welcome to the program. Very much. Great to be here. Now you are, and I don't use this word lightly, but you are an expert on all things Cuban and Cuban cigars. You know, James, I don't use that word uh, very frequently, but, you know, people have been saying that to me and I took a step back and I go, you know what, I guess I do own that because I've actually, I absolutely have uh, gotten a lot, gotten a lot of uh, knowledge and experience uh, for someone that goes to Cuba as often as I have over the last 12 years and really have fallen in love with the country. And it, you know, it's my personality, no matter what I do, hobby or business, that I need to know everything about everything. And um, I really did that. I've really studied everything there is to know about Cuba in relation to cigars. I mean, do I know the history of Cuba? Absolutely. Do I know the history of Cuban cigars? Yes. But when I talk about being an expert of Cuba, I'm talking present day, you know, what the whole Cuban market is about cigars in general, and and just from my own discoveries being there. So I, I want to start in the simplest of terms. Uh, Cuban cigars are still illegal here in the United States, correct? It is correct. Now, I can talk about why there's some confusion and why the confusion started. 
when uh, President Obama changed some of the rulings where he allowed for Americans to actually, he opened up, there's still an embargo, there still is a travel ban, so to speak, but he allowed certain more categories under the general license category to be able to travel. One was considered people to people. Um, and the people to people uh, category was you being able to go there and the United States wanted you to show them the friendliness of America and what democracy is all about, and hopefully slowly changing the minds of the Cuban people. And I think it's 100% was on the right track of what needed to be done. Um, because anytime you, my feeling, I understand why the Cuban Americans here were against this initially and why they don't want to put money into the Cuban government pocket. I understand their plight and I understand their side and their view. My view is that by putting money as much as possible into the Cuban people's pockets, you are helping the Cuban people. Um, yes. Does money still also go into the Cuban government's pockets? Yes. Every time you buy a plane ticket, every time you land there, there's fees that are being paid. Eventually everything trickles, you know, to the Cuban government. But at the same time, there has been a massive, massive change in the welfare and the financial well-being of the Cuban people. So that has changed. But getting back to your question uh, about Cuban cigars, Obama made that change and allowed you to bring back initially, it was $100, then it went to 100 cigars. What people didn't know, and because they never really publicized it, was that it was really unlimited. Even the customs people didn't know it. And I have friends that would come back with literally, you know, suitcases and suitcases. You know, <laughs> yeah. we're talking $10,000, $20,000 worth of cigars. And they were like, what the hell are you doing with all these cigars? And they would have to call their supervisors and this. For some reason, they allowed unlimited. The key is for private use. So if you could articulate and explain to them that this was for your personal use and this is going in your humidor, you were able to get through. And I know friends that have these enormous humidors in their homes and they're some of the biggest collectors in the world. And they literally have pictures of their humidors at home and say, Mr. Customs Officer, do you see this is my humidor? You see how much space I have? I want to fill it up with Cuban cigars. Wow. And they would allow you to, they would allow you. Now, I think that's also wrong. I 100% believe that's wrong too, because if you go to Nicaragua, Dominican, guess what? It's only a hundred cigars that you can bring back tax-free. Wow. Right. Oh, I, I will say this. Well, I guess you just pay more. It for the Cuban cigars, when you're bringing in Cuban cigars, you could bring in unlimited, but you do have the threshold of only eight hundred dollars uh tax-free, and then you have to pay with the tax. But the tax is actually a lot less for Cuban cigars than there are. Really? And it and it's done by country, you know, like. I remember in Germany, if you come back from Germany and certain parts of Europe, it's only 50 cigars, where other parts of the Caribbean, most are 100 cigars. So the federal government, in their wisdom, I don't know how they decide these, <laughs> these rulings, but for Cuba, they, were, they went from the complete strictness of zero to basically open the floodgates. Wow. And I don't, I don't want to get too political on this podcast, but I don't, I don't think we're going to be able to avoid it that much either. But when you look at Cuba and the embargo, and it's a communist country and the embargo has been in place since the sixties, 
But then you look at China, another communist country, and we literally get everything from China. It seems to be so short-sighted, and it really honestly only hurts the people of Cuba and not so much the government. I agree, and you're right. You know, the Cuba topic is a very touchy subject, especially in this industry, you know, along the manufacturers. Now, I'm a little different because really my founding and origins in this industry were from overseas uh, countries and businesses that I was involved in. And therefore, since 90% of what's being sold outside of the U.S. is Cuban, it forced me as a stockholder of these other companies to be involved uh, with this type of uh, product. Again, nothing for the U.S. market, for overseas, but you know, a lot of retailers, a lot of manufacturers especially had somewhat of a problem with me dealing with the Cuban government, but I don't deal with the Cuban government um, the least amount I possibly can. I mean, of course you're dealing with them, but you know, as least as you possibly can. When I say that, let me give an example. And again, um, again, we don't want to be political and I really rather not. I tell the the people there and I tell anybody that tells me, you know, why do you go to Cuba and this and that? I go, look, I'm all about the cigars. Everything I do, it's my passion. It's my business. It's my occupation, my avocation. It's everything. And when I first set foot in Cuba back in 2008 and I looked around, not only did I feel like I went back in time, but I was on a different planet because everything on that island is just different. Some things amazing, but most things sad. And, you know, it's just so different. I I can't explain how different I've been to many, many countries all over the world. And for me, it's, I, I fell in love with the country. I love hot weather. I mean, I lived in Florida for 23 years and I can't wait to get back to the warmer weather, but <laughs> Cuba is very similar to Florida weather. Um, the architecture, the, the historic nature, the old cars, um, and just the way things are done. It, it's and the, as much as an island can be separated thanks to the embargo and to um, it being an island and not having a lot of money uh, had very, very limited resources. And unfortunately that affects the people every day. Uh, we could talk about the present day of how badly that's been affecting them, but you know, I don't want to get ahead of myself. I'm going to let you ask the questions. So. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Cause I definitely want to talk about that. Cause earlier this year, there were a lot of protests in Cuba and I, we'll, we'll talk about that, but I want to kind of go back to, uh, you know, Obama opened things up more so than than had been in the last, you know, 50, 60 years is and then Trump comes in and he kind of sounded like he shut things down. Like what changed between the Obama administration and the Trump administration? The first time he shut things down was for, you know, he was trying to appease the Republican Party because generally the Republicans, all, all the Cuban-Americans are pretty much Republican and he wanted the Florida vote as much as possible. And they, they you know, they have a lot of political weight. So Florida is an important state. So he came up with these changes uh, right before his election, his proposed changes. And then he actually went through with some changes. And all he did was a couple things. When you went there initially, you were only allowed to go to certain hotels. He basically created a list of do not do business with these companies. And the, these particular companies, which included hotels and, and places, um, certain retail shops, 
the way Cuba works, um, to try to give you an example is, I, I give the example, it's like the mafia. So you have these crime families, right? So you got, and there, there was three three armed. You had like the Castro arm, you had the, uh, you know, his brother's arm, and then you had the, the head of the military guy. So those three guys kind of had three crews and one guy is head of the military. So the head of the military guy, his they put under his umbrella, like they probably sat around a table and they said, okay, you have this hotel, you can have this business. And any money that's generated, you know, taxing that they do flows up to you. Hmm. So the military division got certain companies. One was called Symex. Symex uh, owned or operated or was in control of um, some of the very plush and also medium um, level hotels, retail shops. I'll give you an example. There's 11 Casa de Habanoses in Havana. And two of them are full under Cymex and two of the most popular ones too, by the way, the one in old downtown Havana in the old city. And then the one on Quinta, uh, which is fifth Avenue. And that's a very popular shop. And those two, a lot of people didn't realize now fall under Cymex. So technically if you were there as an American, you were not allowed to visit those two shops and not allowed to purchase thing at those two shops. But did they, did people do their homework? Probably not. There were certain hotels now, here's my my feeling about that. To me, it's all semantics, yeah. right? So, okay, so this one is going directly to the military arm, but at the end of the day, it's all going to the government. Right. So whether you stay at this hotel or that hotel, it's all going one place, you know, right. flowing uphill. So it's not, to me, that was a semantic thing that he did and to appease, but at the end of the day, it really did nothing. And I think a lot of people saw through that. And after he did change some more things, the last changes that he made were much more severe, and that's affected the Cuban uh, people a, a lot and the government. Um, it started off with the whole connection with Venezuela and what was going on there. The one thing Cuba has is resource, uh, of, as far as resource, is people. So their general way to make money outside of just remittances from, from the uh, relatives. And that's the number one way that they get money in that country. What they do is they have people. So they, they make deals with countries. They have one that's been standing for a long time with say Brazil, a lot of the, of the African countries. And they'll say, look, we'll send to Brazil, we'll send you a hundred thousand doctors. What? hundred thousand. Yeah. And then in, in exchange for money. So instead of paying them, you just pay us. So they will send however thousands of doctors to each country and whatever deal they worked out, just pay us 50,000 per person or 100,000 times, whatever. The big deal was with Venezuela, and that was in exchange for oil. So for the long time under Chavez, oil was coming to Cuba for free in exchange for their medical teams that were over there working, living. And these, these people in Cuba were there, they would do, it was like military service. When you became a doctor, you have to go two years and serve as a doctor, but that's how they do it with every profession. When you're, when you graduate as an attorney in Cuba, you have to provide two years of service to the government as either a prosecutor or defense attorney. So pretty much they since you don't pay for schooling there, they, they try to get their money back that way. So the way they get their money back with the doctors and other things is they source you out to other countries. 
The deal with Venezuela, I mean, I looked at the numbers and it just never made sense. I don't care if you send, you know, uh, a million people there. If you send a million doctors at whatever, the amount of oil you're getting for free just didn't make sense. Right. And I think the, the the Venezuelan people ultimately knew. Um, and then Chavez, I, in my opinion, they, there was a side deal there that, hey, so much money gets kicked back to Chavez, you know, in exchange for all this free oil. Who knows? I mean, you don't have to be a rocket science to figure out somehow this is happening. Right. And then when Maduro, who was the successor to Chavez, he was you know from the same cloth, the same group, and that continued. But he got a lot of pressure from Venezuela because, like, look, the country's not doing well, and you're giving all this free oil to Cuba. What's going on? So it was cut in like half. And then a few years ago, just prior to like, I have to say that I haven't been to Cuba now. Last time I was there was March of 2020 when I was there uh, covering the Habanos Festival. So that was my last time. And back then, there were starting to be lines at the gas stations for the last year, which had never been there before because the oil was cut back. Right. So the U.S. government says, hey, we were going to try to, you know, sever this relationship because they saw Venezuela as being the threat in a lot of ways. And so they saw Cuba as propping them up in, in, in ways that they, it wasn't financially. They sent their security people there because, you know, it was their self-interest to protect Maduro and that party because they wanted to make sure they won the election because the right. other party, you know, and it, I'm sure it's fixed there. Everything's fixed in Venezuela. But yeah. um, again, not to be political, but they were trying to protect their interests so they have this connection with that's the way Cuba does things. I mean, they gave a lot of money, uh, not money. They, they got a lot of money from countries like South Africa. You know, Mandela gave them a few million dollars. And then Cuba says, yeah, can you kind of forgive that debt for us? Because uh, we just don't have a lot of money. We're a third world country. And you know what? Countries like South Africa and many other African countries have given a lot of free money. Angola, you know, uh, have given wow. a lot of free money. And you say, why did they do that? Well, they felt that they had some solidarity because Cuba is all about, you know, freedom, <laughs> ironically yeah. enough. Yeah. Um, so they, and, and rebellion and against the people. And so they helped and organized a lot of these uprisings of these current regimes in a lot of these countries. And so they saw them as, you know, look, Chavez, his hero was Fidel Castro. He wanted to be Fidel Castro and he did things just like Fidel Castro. The first thing Fidel Castro did when he came into power and into Havana, he walked into the uh, the Hilton, the Havana Hilton, and he said, you know what, this is going to be my new home. And it became, you know, the Havana Libre, the same thing Chavez did. You know, he came in and there was a Hilton there. And then all of a sudden there wasn't a Hilton there. He just wow. said, you know what, I think I'm going to take this hotel. Now he paid for it. He said, you know, how much, because I, funny thing is I was traveling one time to Venezuela and I happened to be on the plane with an executive from Hilton and I'm a big Hilton traveler. Like I, I like to stay at Hilton hotels. And I said, you guys got a Hilton over there? And they're like, nah, that's a funny story. And then <laughs> she basically told me they did have an embassy suites or something that I used that was part of the same chain, but he just took it over and paid them whatever they thought you know, like they weren't happy with it, but what are you going to say? No. Right. Yeah. So at least he paid him. Now, keep in mind, you know, um, the Fidel Castro regime tried to pay 
for a lot of these lands and properties that they reappropriated, but the U.S. government wouldn't allow it. I'm sure it would have been pennies on the dollar, but they would not allow it. And, you know, there's that's why there's all this legal potential legal cases coming up if and when it ever opens up fully. That That's an interesting conversation. I think we can get into a little bit later. But do you, did anything change when Trump made all these changes with the amount of cigars you could bring back? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. So there was the part I started talking about the um, how he changed the certain areas in the list of places you can visit. The next thing he did is a couple of very key things. There is no longer any legal way to bring Cuban cigars into this country uh, from Cuba. Not only Cuban cigars, but alcohol, basically any Cuban products. Right. It goes back to the way it used to be, where the only legal products that can be imported or brought back, not imported, brought back into the country is recorded material, um, books, and artwork. That kind of was always allowed and you were given a pass, but now it went from, again, unlimited, you know, coming back with as many cigars you want to now zero back to a zero tolerance and more, but here's the thing, they put that into effect, but it happened, you know, during the pandemic or right before Yeah, nobody's going there anyway. So right now that hasn't really affected it. What did affect the Cuban government. And again, I don't know why this happened. I don't, I, and again, I, I'm not really a political guy. I really try to stay out of politics myself. I mean, I have my views like everybody else, but I'm not the guy that sits in a, in a cigar shop and starts talking politics. I, I just, I think cigars really kind of transcends everything, including Absolutely. politics. So that's not my topic, but what he did was he didn't allow for remittance. One of the, a lot of people know what Western union is. Western union is a way to send money um, to somebody else. I guess you could do it nationally, but it's used primarily internationally uh, you go to a local place, you give them money, and it gets to the other place, less their percentage in fees. Well, that was the predominant way that Cuban Americans were sending money back to their families in Cuba. And there were limits in place um, prior to Obama. Obama raised the limits. I think he took off complete limits. Then, then, Obama, uh, then Trump set limits back in place with his first niche where he started cutting things back with the certain category restricted list. And the other thing was the limitation of how much you could send back. Then Trump took it back completely because he wanted, he wanted uh, Florida. So he wanted to appease, you know, the Florida legislation, uh, Rubio and and all those guys and basically went to zero. So that really hurt them would hurt them in a normal time. But now during where there's, you know, basically the embargo really is now because you can't go and it's a self-imposed embargo because, you know, they, Cuba, their biggest outside, the number one for their GDP is people sending money to their, you know, to their relatives and friends. That is the way that that government does live. The number two way is tourism. Um, Cuban cigar, people go, oh, cigars, even though they're well known for cigars, it's really low on the list of what it actually brings the Cuban government as far Seriously? as financial. Yeah, it's not a big thing. Sugar used to be a really, really big thing with uh, Cuba. Um, but the way Florida now produces a lot of sugar and um, they just they just don't have a lot of 
production of, of sugar anymore. So they're not really exporting very many products. And cigars, a lot of people don't realize, I mean, we all love cigars, but we don't realize really what a small industry and percentage of what, even in the United States, the amount of cigar smokers, do people realize how small this industry is? It's like, whole uh, what, like one to three percent of the population. Yeah, but in dollars or in people, um, it's about a billion dollar industry, the whole thing, you know. And as far as people, there's about 300,000 cigar smokers. That's not a lot of people. You know what I mean? That's not a lot of people. So it is a very small industry and and we're the largest market in the world. Okay. So, uh, you know, it's not a big industry. So as much as it's very prestigious, it's known for its further Cuban cigars. And, um, you know, when you think of Cuba, Cuba and Cuban and cigars kind of go together. Um, it's not a really big part of their income. Let's talk about why Cuba is known for their cigars. And let's kind of dig into the, 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 the Cuban cigars, as it were. What, what really sets them apart uh, in the eyes of the, of the rest of the world? Because I, I, if I'm being honest, I've kind of gotten away from enjoying Cuban cigars as much as I used to. And I don't know if it's a, a quality control thing or if it's just that I found, like with your product, it's Cuban-esque, and I don't have to worry about any of the construction issues, any anything else, and it 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 scratches that itch, so to speak, for me. So what sets them apart? Why are they so known for that? Like, what was it? Because speaking to somebody else 20 years ago, uh, Cuban cigars used to be much stronger. They used to be more like a Nicaraguan, and now I would say they're more like a Dominican. Well, I've been smoking Cuban cigars from pretty much when I started smoking cigars in general, which was 1992. Um, as when I started and had my first premium cigar, I was pretty much fresh out of college. And uh, somebody handed me a cigar that, you know, in college I would have picked it up, but I was smoking real crap and uh, that I just didn't like it. So, but once I had my first cigar, again, I tried to gravitate. And why did I go to Cuban cigars is because Here's the reasons. You ask why are people, what's the allure of Cuban cigars? The first is history. If you do any reading about cigars in general, Cuba is credited for being the birthplace of the modern day cigars. The reality is it didn't really come from there. You know, it was really the Mayans and it goes back to like the 10th century, but it was more likely the Aztecs of Cuba who discovered the tobacco and then started to roll it and, and smoke it. Um, they were really originally smoking it for its medicinal purposes. Uh, and then the tobacco that was introduced to the Western world and the whole art of smoking, that really started and it's credited with Christopher Columbus on his first trip there. And he saw the natives, you know, smoking the cigar and the tobacco they called Cohiba. Um, Sikar, S-I-K-R is another word that was used uh, where the word cigar came from. So anyway, they, they it landed into Europe and then Latin America, you know, and North America, it, it got everywhere. But yeah. so that was the history of the first and only cigars. And, and ironically enough, when the factories started coming back into hundreds of years later, um, all the factories were in Europe, even in the beginning when, when uh, Columbus was bringing all the, you know, when all the travelers were going to, uh, to Cuba to buy the tobacco, the factories were all in Spain. 
And and the and ironically enough, when to Cuban tobacco really took off in Cuban cigars, the factories were in the U.S. Tampa was the hub, yeah. the center point. You know, you've heard Hava to Hava Tampa, and and really uh, Tampa was the, the 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 epicenter of the cigars. I mean, Havana they were called Havanas, or and that's where the word Habanos came from. But Havana was a, a Cuban cigar because it came from Cuba, but really they were rolled and manufactured in the U.S. And again, we were the largest market in the modern day, you know, in the 1900s up. Um, so people knew that a cigar was Cuban. There's still today, you know, you walk down the street and somebody walks by you and everyone's like, oh, is that a Cuban? Like, you know, I roll my <laughs> eyes. It drives me nuts. But you say, okay, so the first reason the allure it would be the history and where it came from. But today, the real allure of Cuban cigars is the fact that it's still the forbidden fruit. If it wasn't so forbidden in this country, I think a lot of people wouldn't be so interested. But I don't know if it's coincidental, but when Obama did make those changes, a lot of people understood or thought that Cuban cigars were now legal in the U.S. And if you talk to any retailer or any shop that you go to, and they'll tell you that the influx of calls that went (laughs) from like maybe zero to none, you know, to none, to all of a sudden they're getting how many calls a day because they thought you could really buy Cuban cigars and bring them into the country. And it wasn't until for a while when, when Obama first made the change, it was only from Cuba. You could buy Cuban cigars and bring them back from your travel. Then later on, he allowed it and broadened it. So you, if you were in Spain or if you were in Europe or any other country, you could legally buy Cuban cigars and bring them back to the country. So that was added later, but still for personal use, they were not legal uh, in shops and, um, Again, that made it very, and also you could never and still can't legally buy Cuban cigars through the mail, which is probably 90% of how most people buy them today. Yeah, yeah, you just order them and somehow they get through the system and you have your Cuban cigars. Then there's the whole thing about Cuban versus fake Cuban. That's a whole nother topic. But (laughs) um, so the allure of the forbidden fruit, as far as the quality, yeah. Um, that's a whole topic too that I would like to address. Absolutely, let's let's get into it because I think Cuban cigars as a whole. If you somehow get your hands on a Cuban cigar, and I'm certainly not advocating for you to go and do that because it's you're technically, you know, trading with the enemy or how like however the the government can spin it to trading, put you you know the enemy. Yes. Yeah, like like you know, find the crap out of you. Uh, but if you do get your hands on them and you get a box. Like conservatively, I think out of the box, 50% are probably unsmokable, whether it's a draw issue, whether it's a construction issue. Um, What percentage did you say? I would say 50. 50 is a bit high. Um, From experience, I can tell you having shops overseas, you would buy, say, a box of Cigolo 6s that, you know, retail for $550 and there would be 15 to 20% of every single box would be very difficult to smoke or not really, in my opinion, sellable. You know, if you, people have to struggle to get a draw, if people have to, uh, I mean, there's some that just literally can't no yeah, draw. Right. Um, it's generally 15 to 20%. 50%, I've yet to come across 50%, but it, it's possible. I may have been exaggerating a little bit. <laughs> and, and, the, and the sadness for me of that is that, that again, is because of the way the government treats 
their employees, the people. Uh, and that's why you have these customer service issues or quality control issues. Talking about the actual tobacco, that has gone through some crazy um, you know, times too. It had a, lots of problems when they didn't have money. And uh, when Russia came in and uh, started funneling money to them after the Cuban crisis, and they put a lot of money in originally, and that was known as the special period. Um, or I don't know if it was the special period is when they stopped giving them the money. I forget, but there was a special period. It's all special to me. Um, <laughs> they went in and they gave money and there was some really good cigars coming out of there. Then it dried up and then there was no money. So they had no money for fertilizer, for anything. Oh, wow. So the cigars really went downhill um, really, really bad. So what was happening, because there was always a demand, Altitis, uh, which is a French company at the time, they said, look, uh, Spanish company, I'm sorry, Spanish, wanted, wanted um, Cuban cigars and they were really bad. So they said, tell you what, we'll start, we're going to pay for the fertilizer. We're going to pay for this and that. So they started giving them money so they can get their cigars. That in turn turned into an official partnership with Cuba Tobacco and Altitis, which in 1994, became the formation of the co-op company called Habanos. So that was started in 1994, and that started making things easier in the modern age of Cuban cigars. So that was supposed to alleviate a lot of these problems. The problem is you have a Cuban company and you have a Spanish company, and they're supposed to kind of work side by side, own 50-50. Yeah. So you have a Cuban president and you have a Spanish president. You have a Cuban vice president. And so, and going down the line, you have a counterpart of a Spanish. But here's the difference the Spanish president is probably bringing in, you know, who knows, you know, well in, well in six figures of some sort. Uh, of, absolutely. Right. The Cuban counterpart is getting maybe 50 bucks a month. Wow. So you have this dichotomy of problems that come through because even though the the most of the Spanish counterparts are also living in Cuba, their Cuban counterparts are there and they're getting nothing. So it leads to, look, when people don't have money, they don't have food. When they don't have food, they can't eat, they die. So it becomes more of a necessity for them to do things that are not accepted in our cultures outside of Cuba. But there, stealing is just a way of life. Right. You know, and I learned this lesson. And again, at some day, I would love to write a book about my experiences in Cuba and the title that I was thinking about. And it's kind of funny, but not so funny because I had a conversation with a guy really early on. And I was like, hey, you know, so you were here and you were doing this job. You work security you all day. And yeah, yeah. How much you make all day? He's like, a dollar. I go, you make a dollar for all day? Wow. And he's like, yeah. I said, wow, I said, things must be really cheap here. I said, so you can live on a dollar a day? And he's like, oh, absolutely not. And I go, well, I don't get it. If you're only making a dollar, you know, no, no, we can't, we can't live on a dollar. I said, so why do you work? And he said, my friend, if I don't work, I can't steal. If I can't steal, I don't eat. So you wow. can apply that to whatever business occupation that they have everybody steals to eat 
to feed their families. So if you work at a restaurant, that's easy. They get food. If they work at a, at a tienda, a little shop, they're selling you the plastic bags that you're supposed to put the stuff in there or everything else. I mean, they're not crazy to steal directly from the government, but indirectly they all do it. Right. You know, like, I mean, if you work at, I mean, there's a black market for everything in that country, everything, because, okay, they do, they do get subsidies, but it's very minimal, you know, but the, the Cubans all have their little cards and they can go get their, their, uh, their eggs and their brown sugar and white sugar and their bread, but it's not enough. And now they actually charge for that, but it's very minimal. Um, they just did away with the two dual um, currency system there that's been around. And um, that was talk about a difference. So one Cuban peso was the equivalent. You have to have 24, 25 Cuban pesos that was worth one CUC, which was a convertible Cuban peso, which was the, the, the form of money that they gave to all the tourists the, and all the hotels and basically if you weren't Cuban, but then the Cubans started using it as well because everything is based now in in, uh, in the Cuban, in the CUC. But then during our embargo, I mean, during our uh, pandemic time, they switched back to a new system that they were talking about for years and they finally did it. And um, now it's all one peso. So I think the exchange rate now, well, the official exchange rate is like 25 to one. So 25 Cuban pesos equals $1. The, the CUC was created to take away the U.S. dollar because prior to that, before the CUC, they used to take American dollars in Cuba. Right. And the CUC is tied directly to the American dollar. So it was one to one. But when you went to Cuba, they would charge you a 10%, what I call the FU fee to Americans. We're going to charge you 10% just because- <laughs> You guys cost us so much money, and this is fu to you. And then the three percent conversion. So you lost thirteen percent. So you brought in a U.S. dollar. You exchanged it at an official um, exchange place, and you got eighty-seven cents. So you were getting hit with thirteen percent, even though one kook was the value of one dollar. So that was in place for a long time, and that's just changed. And I haven't been back to Cuba since this change. Now, what I have heard is because they're hurting so badly that the unofficial exchange is crazy. It was kind of like Venezuela. Venezuela, the boulevard, I mean, the devaluation of that went to like crib. But when I was actually traveling to Venezuela in the uh, early 2010, 2011, it was like six to one or eight to one. Um, No, it was four to one. That was the official rate, but you could get eight to one like unofficially. And it, eroded from there. I mean, it was just crazy. So right now I'm hearing crazy things coming out of Cuba, what they'll do for us dollars because they want us dollars so badly. Wow. This just all comes back to like how much it, it hurts the people of Cuba, this embargo and everything around it. Um, and I want to get into, Oh, that was the one thing I forgot to say was that was the title of my book. Uh, I worked to steal. And it's just, it, it literally, when he said that to me, I mean, it's like, what, you know, why you can't do that. But of course they all do it. And you tell me that the occupation and I'll tell you how they're stealing or how they're making money on the side. It's crazy. Yeah, no, for sure. And in the cigar industry, the, the you know, what you'll see is because you see it in, in groups uh, online and, and otherwise where they have a contact in Cuba that 
either works at a factory, uh, a cigar factory, or knows someone in their factory, uh, in their family does, and they'll send, you know, farm rolled, quote unquote. Well, not really farm rolled per se, but all right, we're talking about occupation. How does it apply to the cigar business? It used to be that every torcedoro, every roller in Cuba would get a cigar a day, two cigars a day. The number recently, again, I'm only talking back a year and a half now to two years, uh, it used to be five. So every roller was able to have five cigars every day. So on top of their generous salary of a dollar a day or so, they were given five cigars. So those five cigars would be collected at home. And generally what they would do is they would get 20 together. And then there is a whole, again, black market there of people that are producing or stealing boxes, labels, and bands and everything, and generally fake. And those are very easy to tell. Uh, And they're being imported in or made there. I'm not sure. but And they're given to these 20 cigars are given to these people and they put the stuff on it. And they hire, let's call them agents that are basically street peddlers (laughs) that basically are trying to go to everybody that can afford generally a tourist and try to sell you a Cuban box. And they say a fake Cuban box of cigars and collect whatever they can. And then they'll split the money with the people, the rollers, and they'll get more money than they way more money from one sale of a box than they would make in four months uh, of work. Oh, absolutely. And the difference there with the Cuban stuff, with the fake Cuban stuff, there's all levels of fake stuff. There's stuff that I've seen that is amazing. The, the, the quality of the bands are just so good. They're hard to, to, to distinguish from a not from a, a not real one or sometimes they're absolutely real because they're they're paid. But again, every job, there's some corruption. Some people inside are selling them. And whatever the market will bear, they'll ask for. So they'll get anything they want. Um, then there's different levels of the actual cigars. The people that get those five cigars, um, yeah, those are real good cigars. Now, they didn't go through any quality control. Um, they're not color graded. They're not put in the box, right? Some, you know, But they're still the same stuff you would get from. And those yeah. are the ones that people generally love. However, there is a very, <laughs> there's people that are just getting wrapper leaves and, and getting that stolen and, and putting everything. You've heard banana leaves. And usually it's just uh, the, the crap that you find on the floor or barely resembles tobacco. And they'll fill these and make them look really nice with a really beautiful wrapper. And when they show it to you in the box, it looks great. But ultimately, until you smoke it, you realize that some of the stuff is not even shouldn't even be consumed in any way. It's it's complete garbage. Right. So you have from complete garbage to a very good cigar that's not an official Habano because it's not comes you know from a Casa de Habanos or officially sold by Habanos, but could be very well a still a good, very good cigar. So that's the different levels, and a lot of that is also why the quality control issue is there because a lot of this stuff is coming back door, side door, whatever you want to call it. But even the official stuff, it's amazing. I went through a course in Habanos there and they, they showed us some of these quality control images that I was amazed at some of the things that have gotten through where the bands are put on upside down, <laughs> the wrong cigars are put in the wrong boxes. I mean, that's just, that's just the, the, the icing on the cake. The, the sad thing is that, Yes. Uh, who did I speak to the other day? I spoke to somebody at Altitis and they asked me, they said, when you're there, did you go to the, the Romeo and Juliet factory? And I said, yeah. And they said, did you notice 
if the you know draw machines were were active and i said no they weren't i i saw one in the back but i didn't see them using it he goes well we bought them x amount of machines recently and we heard that they weren't even using them i said well if they are i didn't see it you know there are some factories that they are using them but i don't think like the difference between my factory and some of the other you know let's call them american based or american owned uh factories um that are in nicaragua honduras or wherever you know they're they're using the draw machine on pretty much every cigar um in cuba even in their best bet, they'll tell you we do it on like every fifth or every 20 or, you know, they're not hitting every cigar with it. Why, why is that? Time, time is money. So, you know, they're there. I don't know. That's what it, my biggest thing. I still love Cuban cigars. And and for me, there's a, a lot of reasons. People ask me, why do you love Cuban cigars so much? And, and here's my answer. Because it's, you know, think of it like this. What you grow up with when you grew up as a kid and you had what your favorite cereal was, let's say it was Frosted Flakes, right? Or somebody liked, you know, uh, Captain Crunch. You always have a fondness for that Captain Crunch. Now, you're not eating Captain Crunch right now, but when you see it and your kid's having it, you want to do it because it reminds you of your early days. And there's just something about, for me, the fondness of when I first started smoking cigars, how much I enjoyed that particular flavor. Now, Cuban cigars definitely are different tasting. They're, they're not what I I definitely can tell you as an American, the average cigar that comes to the United States is a totally different flavor profile than what a Cuban cigar is. The Cuban cigars have a uniqueness to it. I have a friend of mine who every day he's gotten into it because he's a big cigar, um, not only collector, but smoker. He gives me a test every day and it's the Cuban, not a Cuban. <laughs> Every day he does this to me. If I can pick out a Cuban cigar versus a non-Cuban cigar. And I think I'm at like 99% of it. Now he's gotten me on a couple, which I still think that those were not real Cuban cigars because he's buying them from Australia. And we're talking, he'll give me like a 2004 purchase from Australia, you know, and, and there's a few that have just I still, he, he gets me with this one every time because it just doesn't taste Cuban <laughs> because I can taste the Cuban tobacco. Um, I, to me, it's just very unique. Now, that was my job. And that was my, my, my mission was to try to duplicate that flavor and that essence using non-Cuban uh, tobacco. And the, the reality is you can get really close, really close. Um, close enough is what I like to say. Yeah. Where if you like Cuban cigars, you can have a non-Cuban cigar, particularly in my brand and very many others out there too, um, that are very close. But what you're not going to have is that 20% of that box is going to be just exactly. unsmokable. So exactly. the quality, but you know what? Smoking a good Cuban cigar, they, the other thing is there's certain brands of the non-Cuban brands that I won't mention because I don't want to piss anybody off that I really believe if you purchase them, you literally have to put them in your humidor for a year, year plus. And there's some very expensive, good cigars that you just are not, in my opinion, smokable right out, out of the gate. I would because agree with that. Now with the Cuban cigars, they just don't believe in aging or ferment. I mean, it's just even the fermentation process is very quick. I mean, it's from seed to box, like five months. It's just really fast. And um, every Cuban cigar benefits from, you know, aging, secondary aging in a box. Well, let me, uh, I'm glad you brought that up because starting in 2019, I noticed 
and so have a lot of other enthusiasts and aficionados who have smoked 2019, 2020, uh, and even 2021 uh, Cubans. They've noticed that they don't need nearly as much aging as the previous years, 2018, 2017, 2016, so on and so forth. In fact, a lot of them believe that they are ready to go out of the box. Something has changed. Are you aware of anything in the process that they're doing or have been doing since 2019 that would allow you to just open up a box of Cubans, literally, you know, yeah, rolled in box? They have more tobacco, so they're not rushing them as much as they were rushing them. That's mainly the process is really the same. Um, they're just being more aware of it because they've gotten a lot of feedback and flack. Um, predominantly they listen to, you know, the European market, the Swiss, you know, the British, um, they've been caught with their pants down in some ways because the Bejique, which is the Cohiba Bejique is kind of their crown jewel right now. Um, hardest to get very expensive cigar. And for a while, the Swiss market and the British market was like, you know, this stuff is just not what it was. It's not a Bejique and Cuba listened. You know, and they said, you know, we're right. So right now trying to get Bejiques is like the hardest thing because they realized they were just making subpar Bejiques. Now, all their limited edition stuff, in my opinion, should be the same stuff. They should be all their edition because that is aged tobacco. The rest of it is not. So mm-hmm. if you can age a Cuban, to, a Cuban cigar, man, it just tastes so much better. Yeah, There's a certain smoothness that you just will not get from, from a fresh one. Now, Again, it's a different palate. Some people will never think a Cuban cigar, even the strongest of Cuban cigars, to me, you know, is is a mild plus in in a non-Cuban. But I I got used to that, you know. And and again, the other thing that cracks me up in this this industry, whatever you want to call it, is that people think, oh, I'm a real cigar smoker, so I only smoke really full-bodied cigars. And because I've been smoking so many years, that makes me like, like the, that's their badge of honor. Like, oh, I only smoke Cubans. I only smoke um, strong cigars. I smoke mild cigars. I smoke medium cigars. I smoke full cigars. And it's sad that a lot of people are brainwashed or they just are not educated enough to say, hey, you know what? You can really get a really good cigar with a mild flavor, you know, or a mild, you know, strength. And again, the strength comes from the amount of fermentation. And the strength comes from the actual leaves too, of course, you know, and the Lijero leaf is where the strength comes from, but yeah. how they're aged and how they're used and what countries is what generates, you know, the strength of a scar. But then there's, there's, there's nicotine strength and there's flavor strength. So yeah, there's I, that too. And I think the industry has done a terrible job of differentiating between those two, because you can have a mild uh, strength cigar that's full flavor. That's full of complexity absolutely. and nuance and is just absolutely beautifully blended. Uh, and it's still mild. So I, I think the industry as a whole has done a terrible job of educating the, the, the consumer on that. And, and they're learning. I mean, I remember when Nicaragua was just starting out to be the place where cigars were coming in the early 90s. And some of the early stuff was just, whoa, it was just so super strong. And, you know, I'm like, I don't understand this whole concept. Um, but you know what? I don't think they got it because if you took your education and background that relates to Cuba and the way things are done, and that's what happened when when all the Cubans that fled from Cuba from the cigar industry ended up going 
to the um, to Dominican Republic, that was the first big spot, you know. And yeah. and the funny thing is, it seems like all the Cuban Americans, I mean, all the Cubans in Cuba that were in the cigar business, for some reason, came from the Canary Islands. I don't know what that connection is, but like, hmm. see, every Cuban came from somewhere else too. There's very few. I mean, they killed all the indigenous people, right? And, yeah. So everybody else is a transplant. Um, but you know, the Canary Island background. There's a lot of Span Spaniards, of course, Spanish. Um, descent Cubans there. And I'd say that's probably the largest percentage. But for some reason, I just as a side note, I just thought about I don't know why it is with the Canary Island uh, heritage. But anyway, these people went to Dominican and other countries and try to use their same techniques that applied there. Now, it kind of worked because in the Dominican Republic, you had roughly the same amount of, um, you know, rainfall, temperature, climate was similar. So, other than the tobacco, the, the the soil being completely different, yeah. um, or or you know, they were able to produce cigars that were similar. Then when you went to Nicaragua, you can't do that. Nicaragua soil is just so mineral rich. I mean, you're talking about direct volcanic soil coming yeah. from Mombacho and the other volcanic um, country. That 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 country, the volcano, the volcanoes are right there. The difference, but that's where the best tobacco comes from. But it needs to be fermented properly and it needs to be aged properly. Even the soil that comes from Cuba, the coveted best uh, area of, uh, you know, the Mecca of soil, you know, the, the Vuelta Baja region of Cuba, you know, the, top, the, the actual, uh, I forgot what they call it, where, where when they look at the genial, uh, the ground, you know, the basic bottom of the ground, they see that the volcanoes that were in Mexico and there's some kind of, they trickle down under the earth and they really just go through that one section. So it's still volcanic, but it's getting the filtering from all the, you know, the distance. Yeah. And that's why it's mellowed out. Now you get, you know, volcanic soil right in, you know, in Nicaragua and it's just way too strong. Yeah. So you need to, you, you need to ferment it properly. And, and in the beginning, people were trying, they, they weren't fermenting enough and it was super strong and there were just complete nicotine bombs. And, and a lot of Americans still like nicotine bombs. I personally don't. I mean, yeah, I smoke no. enough cigars where I get enough nicotine. And, and yeah. when I when I ferment cigars, I mean, when I've had really strong cigars and people tell me, oh, man, I get such a buzz. And I said, well, you know, we ferment to get rid of all that excess nicotine. Exactly. So you don't get that buzz. But, you know, there's a cigar for everybody. And <laughs> I always say that. Let me let me ask you this. Because earlier you had said that you think that you feel like it's more of the forbidden fruit type thing here in the United States, but that's not the case with the rest of the world. Does the rest of the world still see Cubans as the cigar or are non-Cubans starting to compete worldwide? Well, that's another thing that happened with the Obama changes. The rest of the world freaked out because the, the way that everybody in America thought Cuban cigars were legal the rest of the world also said, oh, no, now we're not going to be able to ever see another Cuban cigar again because the Cuban, the American market is just going to buy every cigar there is. So everybody started freaking out that was in the cigar world outside of the U.S. And again, a very small industry, even outside of the U.S. So people said, you know what, we better start looking at these non-Cuban cigars because they may be the only thing we can sell at some point. So. What they did is they opened up their minds more than anything. Before that, and again, dealing with overseas for the majority of my cigar, you know, history of being in this industry was, you know, predominantly overseas. 
Initially, if you gave somebody a non-Cuban cigar, they would say to you, oh, a Dominican. I'm like, well, no, this is actually Costa Rica. Oh, Dominican, Dominican. And then, it would, <laughs> then the next word that would come right after is fake. I'm like, what do you mean fake? It's not a fake cigar. It's a, it's a, it's a cigar from Costa Rica using different tobaccos <laughs> from, no, 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 it's fake. It's fake. I'm like, so if it wasn't Cuban, it was considered fake. So it went from fake, Dominican. And then now the new buzzword is new world. And that one I like, okay, because they started to not be negative because before they, they thought they were fine. We have the not, we have the Cuban, you guys do it because you can't have Cubans. You are just, you have to smoke this stuff because you can't get Cubans. That was right. the mentality. So now they said, oh man, we might not be able to get Cubans. So let's try some of this. So again, it's a different animal. But however, the same way I use the analogy of wines, how there's wines from different regions, doesn't mean that this wine is any better or worse than the wine that comes from France versus Australia or, or California. They're just different. And yeah. you can't compare one to the other. They're all wines, but there's a lot of different factors. And the same thing with cigars. You know, the countries, the, the, the way that they're aged, um, the way that they're blended makes for gazillion different variations. And that's what's the beauty of being able to try and smoke different things. So yes, the rest of the world since about 2016, 17, 18, the years they started saying, well, let's try different things. And the world has opened up and then they start actually enjoying them. At first they'd say, oh man, this is so much different. And again, if you're used to only eating you know, one thing every day, and then somebody gives you something different, it's still food, but it tastes different. So yeah. it's, you're not going to like it at first. And then you realize, oh, maybe I do like this. And some actually prefer it. And, but it's, it's a transition that's happening and it's going to take time. It's still, I say the non-Cuban cigar overseas in general is maybe 10% now. Certain countries, maybe more, but some less. When that opens up, the, the best thing that happens, if it does open up to the U.S. market, then the Americans can also say is, OK, this is different, but doesn't have to be better or worse. There's still, for me, an homage that I pay to Cuba for its history in the cigar world. But and I like the blends of cigars, but I, my palate has also changed as everybody else does in their journey in this thing. And, and you start appreciating, if not, let's say it's not your preference, you can appreciate a Cuban cigar, you can appreciate a cigar that has Indonesian tobacco, which is another big region that people are using tobacco that yeah. most people don't know anything about. Right. Um, yeah. You know, and all the different wrappers that come from so many different countries and, and areas. So yes, it's opening up overseas and the New World cigar is now respected in a different way. They'll tell you it's not a Cuban, it's different, but some people are just realizing that you can get so much different flavors that are coming out. And, and that's the other thing. If you have a true Puro that comes from one country. Now, in, in Nicaragua, there's some really good Puros because you have like three different regions just in Nicaragua that produce so, so different of a leaf right. that you can still get a very, very good mix. The same thing with Cuba, in essence, you know, you have the Vuelta Baja region, but there's five growing regions of you know, tobacco in Cuba, some not so good, some very good. So you can, but most of are only using about three regions. And, but it's very, what I like to, t when people ask me, what's the difference between a Cuban cigar versus a non-Cuban cigar? And I basically say, look, with a Cuban cigar, the different nuances and flavors that you can get are in a limited range because you're dealing with one country and one type of tobacco, you know, one country's tobacco, where 
with non-Cuban tobaccos, if you have tobacco that comes from Nicaragua, if you have tobacco that comes from Dominican, it, it's so different. You're getting a, a wider range of potential flavor profiles that you can generate or create with those with those tobaccos. So it's it's a wider range, or yeah. a wider spectrum. Um, and some people are enjoying the wider spectrum. But again, it's a growing or evolving process. I think the way we're going, that the non-Cuban cigar will end up getting market share for years to come at a larger range. And it'll and then eventually it'll start really snowballing. So you'll see at some point it may be overtake the Cuban market. You know, maybe at some point it'll be 50-50. Well, but and, and it's and getting there. And that's interesting that you talk about what it might happen. What happens if the embargo goes away? Like, I think we all hope that at some point the embargo goes away, especially like very soon, because it is hurting the people of Cuba. Uh, and I know that's not the intention of the embargo. I, I understand the political reasons for it. But if the embargo goes away and everything's opened up and everything's on the table, do you feel like Cuban cigars will change forever and maybe not for the better? No, I think it'll get better. The Cuban cigars will be forced at that point to be better. Right now, you have to understand that they will ship anything to you. And as a retailer distributor, you're stuck. You want the product so bad, they don't take anything back. You know, as a retailer, what? 15 cigars were bad? Nah, too bad. Doesn't right. matter. They're not giving you credit. They're not giving. Now, if I shipped somebody a box of cigars and I had one cigar in that box, that was something wrong with it. I'm hearing about it, you know, yeah. um, and I, and then B, I, of course, I'll give a credit, you know, if, if there is something, but it doesn't necessarily happen to, you know, definitely would not with mine, but with other brands as well, you know, the quality control is there that, you know, you don't have this issue. So right now, the reason it's able to get through is because they can because nobody's saying they just, they don't want to piss off them. Oh, you don't, you want your money back? No. How about we just cut you off? Cause we have, when you have, <laughs> when you have more demand than there is product, you can be like the way they're being, unfortunately, if it opens up, you know, and all of a sudden there's less demand. I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. Cause there's always a demand for Cuban cigars. Um, even as the prices continue to rise. Um, if the demand is less, they're going to be forced to do something about it. And, do you, and, but would you see, it would certainly change the, the new world, the non-Cuban cigars. Don't you think? Because then that opens up all of these blenders and manufacturers to get their hands on Cuban leaf and incorporate oh, that into their blends. Yeah. That's, that's a whole nother market that will happen. And again, again, it'll be more marketing than anything else in my opinion, especially at first. The, the, the sad part about this industry, I guess it's Americans in general, we're, we're all marketing whores yeah. where we go after advertising. And, and with cigars, to me, you know, it's about the cigar, not about the marketing. But unfortunately, everybody cares about marketing and, and they'll be marketing, even if they use, a, you know, a, a quarter of a leaf, they'll say, oh, you know, it's a blend with Cuban tobacco. So, yeah, that's all going to happen. But the embargo, when it does go away. Again, it's not. I don't see it happening anytime soon. Where I, I thought it was going in that direction, it was never intended to be a fifty-plus year process. No. I mean, people thought. I mean, 
you know, the, the American factories and companies that had stored two or three years of Cuban tobacco, you know, in their resources, and they kept selling Cuban tobacco, you know, purchased prior to the embargo for years because they figured by the time they get close to running out, that embargo is going to be over. They thought it was going to be six months, a year, two years on the outside. And now, you know, it's been it's going to need an act of Congress to, to remove the embargo. Right. You know, with the Herms, uh, you know, the 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 act that was placed under uh, Clinton. And then um, ah, it's been crazy. But I think it's going to change. Uh, the Helms-Burton Act is, um, you know, yeah. I, I don't want to talk history because right. you can easily find all that and, and the, the political part of it. But when the embargo is released, it's going to do a lot. One for our for our business, it's going to make people are like, oh, that's wrong. You know, Cubans are I'm like, look, it's only going to bring more attention to cigars in general. It's going to bring these people that never have smoked a Cuban cigar. And all of a sudden now it's legal. They got to try it. Yep. So they'll go in and say, oh, give me your, you know, and they'll, what? this Cuban cigar is $50. Are you kidding me? You know, <laughs> all right, give me one Cuban and then let me try this one. This one looks good. Or maybe a tobacconist will recommend something. And if you like that type of cigar, you know, take this one. So it's going to just eventually people will, will say, hey, there'll be certain people that only like Cuban cigars. There's the same way there's people that only smoke Davidoffs, you know, it's yeah. pricey. There's the, uh, you know, it's same reason why people, and this is going to not be happy for my friends at Davidoff, but you know, a lot of people <laughs> smoke Davidoffs because it's an expensive cigar. Yeah. You know I mean? It's a good cigar. Don't get me wrong. It's a great cigar. They, they're one of the few companies that, that are very pricey, but are worth buying. Is it worth the price that they, they charge? I, I can't say that that's up to the individual consumer, but is it a good cigar? Yes. Yeah. But there are a lot of very pricey cigars that, or not, yeah, or no. not, not <laughs> even if there was, a, you know, a, a, a very inexpensive cigar wouldn't be worth purchasing, but that's another story. But people tend to buy things that, uh, you know, are marketed, and if they cost more, they, they must, there must be a reason for it. But I, I think people are going to start, it's going to bring a lot of interest into the industry, and I think you'll see worldwide, you'll see more cigars being sold, non Cuban cigars being sold. I've noticed in the last five years. It's been incredible the amount of potential that's out there. And, yeah. and to, to just mention and give a little plug to my, my own brand, I've always called, you know, the Levita Havana cigar, the bridge cigar. And the reason for that is because I also believe I have a Cuban palate. I love Cuban cigars as, as others as well, but that's where I started. So using that as my basis, I wanted to make a cigar for people that like Cuban cigars, but, I'm giving them an option to smoke a non-Cuban in that same vein or in that same flavor profile. Um, so I consider it the bridge cigar from the old school of Cuban cigars to the new world of of non-Cuban cigars. No, and it really is. I, the, the Claro is just absolutely fantastic. And it's one of my favorite cigars. And it, it truly is, in my mind, it is the quintessential bridge cigar because it is if not the most, one of the most Cuban-esque cigars I've ever smoked. And it's absolutely brilliant. If you haven't had an LH Claro, like you've got to find it and you've got to smoke it. Yeah, I, I put that same essence in all of the cigars, the Colorado, which is the medium bodied and, and the Maduro, which is the full body. It's still the essence of a Cuban cigar there with total other things going on at the same time. But you're right. The Claro is the closest. A lot of times I'll go to a shop 
and somebody will say, oh, let me try, you know, your Maduro. I'm like, well, why don't you try the Claro first? They're like, I don't smoke Connecticut's. I'm like, well, look, if you don't like it, throw it out, but at least try it. Yeah. And they'll be amazed and go, oh my God. They, a lot of people, and not just my brand, there are other people that immediately discount, you know, a Connecticut shade or a mild cigar. Try it. There's still lots of flavors and it doesn't have to like knock your socks off. So, you know, the 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 Claro in my line was the Cuban similarity cigar. And if you go to more most of the Casa de Habanos is in Habanos, they'll tell you if you ask them. And in fact, I've gotten a lot of retailers that have called me up from the U.S. and go, hey, man, I never heard of your brand before, but I was in Cuba. And this guy at the Casa de Habanos said that yours is the closest to a Cuban. Oh, I'm like, awesome. well, I don't know. I don't know about that, but, you know, I'll let you be the judge of it. And the, the, I'm not saying that those guys have smoked a lot of different Cuban cigar, uh, non-Cuban cigars. They get a lot. You know, people do give them a lot of different cigars, but, you know, they've smoked mine. And it's, you know, from my background, my history, my education is all Cuban based. I mean, I may not be Cuban. And that's another thing is there was a certain period of time and there's certain manufacturers out there that just feel that if you're not of Cuban descent or of some type of Hispanic or Latin based that you shouldn't be selling or making Cuban cigars. or I mean, cigars. And I think that's a bunch of crap. Obviously yeah. people like Rocky Patel and, and Alan Rubin and a lot of very successful non-Cuban people have, have done very well in this industry, but just the essence of, again, to me, that's a prejudice that like, and, but it's amazing how like, if you have a Cuban background, all of a sudden, oh, this guy, guy just happens to be, you know, Cuban <laughs> from from this, you know, from uh, from his genes, and all of a sudden that makes him more capable of making a, a, a cigar. To me, I don't understand that. Yeah, I don't. But, I don't either. You know, it is what it is. But you know, it's changing too. There's a lot of non-Cuban makers out there that are making some great cigars. But you know, again, it's the history. It's in their genes. It's in their DNA. I like to tell people it's in my DNA as well, because my parents and my grandparents were tobacco farmers, happened to be in Greece, total other side of the world. But still, maybe that gives the <laughs> this is my <laughs> this is my comeback to people that say, oh, you're not Cuban. I'm like, yeah, but it could still be in my DNA. That's you right. know, it was in, it was in my grandparents were, were tobacco farmers. I literally still have tobacco land that was that I inherited from my parents in in Greece, and then maybe someday I will use maybe a quarter leaf of that and, and use that as a marketing gimmick. But the point is, you don't have to be Cuban to smoke cigars, and you don't have to have Cuban cigars just to smoke a cigar. There's a lot of stuff both sides. No, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, what's so I want to shift gears here because you brought up uh, LH Premium Cigars. What's next for for LH? What do you have? Anything in the works that you want to talk about? Yes, I'm very excited about the future of LH. And the reason is I've realized in the last couple of years, since I haven't traveled as much, and I'm really, you know, now domestically, um, you know, the, the non-Cuban market in the U.S. is a different palette. It is totally different. And where my LH, Claro, Colorado, and Maduro are different, but again, those three cigar blends were blended for outside of the U.S. The first blend that I made for the U.S. market in mind directly was the Nick line, you know, starting with the Nick and Jim yep. that uh, my good friend Jim Robinson uh, sells and distributes. And then the Nick line, which is a continuation 
an, of the, the Nick and Jim type of blend in a bunch of different sizes. And that is for the U.S. market. And now from that point, I'm working on other blends that I say are particularly blended for the U.S. consumer in mind. And there's one in particular that I'll be launching. It should have launched already, but, you know, 90 days of being stuck on the water from Dominican. I had some Dominican tobacco I was using and I, and after I selected and, and went through this blend and it took me a while to get it finalized, then I can't get the tobacco. So I got two choices, you know, either try to go to, back to the drawing board and, and try again or wait for this tobacco. So I've kind of been doing both. So I'm, I'm, I am working on some new blends and I'm really excited about it because I think people are going to be very well, well surprised because it's going to be something, again, different than what my normal LH stuff is. So. And I really like I'm, your normal H, LH stuff. So I, I'm really looking forward to this. I like the Nick. I like the Nick and Jim. I like the 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 Claro, the Colorado, the Maduro. I think you you put out a great product. It does bridge the gap. But I want to see what your take is on the American market, on the new world market, so to speak. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I think it's going to be. I've given to certain people that whose opinion I very much trust. Uh, some previous, you know, some preliminary samples and they were just like, oh, wow. And that gives me a lot of encouragement. And that's why I'm looking forward to releasing this stuff. So that's awesome. I love, I love making cigars. I love making cigars that people enjoy. So something about it that gives me a thrill. And that's why I'll probably do this till I'm, you know, 80 years old. I don't see why I should ever stop because I enjoy the industry. I enjoy the people more than anything. And the, the magic that happens from smoking a cigar, how it brings people together to me, that's, uh, you know, you get the people on the street, well, you're in the cigar business, ugh, you know, or you're, 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 you're selling, you know, poison, right. um, you get those people, but then the people understand it. You know, when I try to explain it, you can't really explain it until you actually just are part of that, you know, that culture. Because there is something magical about that tobacco going back to the the medicinal purposes initially to the peace pipe and everything else. Tobacco to me was put on this earth for a reason. And um, it's pretty cool to be in that industry. Absolutely. I feel like that reason is to bring people together. I really do. 100%. 100%. It's the only thing that you can have. And I've said this a million times, but it, but it's just so true where you can have people from all walks of life, all socioeconomic backgrounds, and it doesn't matter. All that stuff is put aside. It's two people, two humans that are enjoying the camaraderie of that happens, the magic that happens when you're smoking a scar of somebody. And it's, Absolutely. Uh, it's a cool feeling. It is. It's a magical connection. Absolutely. Absolutely. I 100% agree with that. Nick Sears, LH Cigars. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise on on Cuban cigars, on Cuba, on the politics of it. And I'd love to have you back because there's a lot of things that we didn't cover today. Uh, And so I'd love to have you back sometime and and dive even deeper into uh, Cuban uh, cigars and the history and, and the people uh, and, and what they're going through. And I think, uh, I think you're the guy to talk to. So I, I, again, I really appreciate your time and coming on. James, I'm here anytime you want me to. I love talking cigars and I love talking Cuba. So anytime you want me, I'm here. Perfect. Thank you so much, Nick. Join me next time where I'm not quite sure what I'll be talking about, but I promise it'll be Simply Stogies. Stay smoky, friends. Thank you for listening to Simply Stogies. Please rate and review Simply Stogies on iTunes. You can follow James on his cigar journey on Instagram at Simply Stogies Podcast, all one word. 
and on Twitter at the Twitter handle at Simply Stogies.